good to be with you all today. Um, I'll just turn back off the microphone for me and try that. Uh, we're going to continue, uh, as we struggle with this, walking through uh, our Minor Prophet series. Today we're going to be covering the book of Jonah, and I, I was speaking with uh, J.P., who uh, oversees our children's area, and he brought up a good point. Um, he said, uh, he said, just because we're we're taking a high level look at all of the minor prophets doesn't mean that any one of these books are any less important than any of the other series that we've gone through. We spend uh, a lot of time going verse by verse through each uh, each book, and so, but just to have just to say that we do practice expository preaching here, but this series for us is a high level look of all of the minor prophets. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. So go on and turn there with me to figure all this stuff out. All right, all right. If it wasn't for our tech team, you just have to listen to me uh, yell the whole time. So these guys are great. Uh, I, this building is cursed, and so everything, every Sunday works perfectly as we rehearse. And then as soon as 10 o'clock happens, all hell breaks loose. So um, y'all just remember that as you come in here every Sunday, pray over whatever is uh, rattling our tech stuff Sunday after Sunday. So yeah, like I said, turn to Jonah with us. Uh, we're going to continue the themes in Jonah uh, that we did with all the other minor prophets, that uh, God, uh, through these minor prophets, are calling us to repentance and also reminding us of the goodness of God. Uh, and we're going to see those themes again today in Jonah. Jonah's the fifth book uh, of the minor prophets, written somewhere between 782 and 753 B.C. Uh, Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was a pretty bad king. Actually, he was really bad. Um, it is about the same time that Amos was prophesying to Israel and warning them about Assyria. Nineveh, which we'll talk about some today, was a major city in Assyria. Israel was being oppressed by the Arameans, uh, but they were given some help, actually likely from the king of Assyria. Jeroboam's father, Jehoash, capitalized on this uh, newfound freedom from Aramean oppression and actually expanded Israel's borders. Um, and then Jeroboam expanded the borders even farther and he actually matched Israel's borders to what they were during the reign of David and Solomon. God was showing mercy to these evil kings of Israel, even in the midst of their, uh, their evilness and them turning their back on God. We'll actually come back to that in a bit. So Jonah is actually a little bit of a different book than the other minor prophets, where the minor prophets are typically a prophet giving a word of warning to Israel. Jonah is actually a book that's just a story about Jonah. It's more of a narrative uh, story just about Jonah himself. There's actually some debate whether it's uh, a parable or actually historical, but most scholars believe that it is a historical book. It's referenced in 1 Kings chapter 14. Jesus actually references Jonah in Matthew 12. We'll get to that later. Uh, parables are usually a short story with not a lot of detail. Jonah is much longer with a lot of detail. So we believe the same that we line up with these scholars. It is a true story, and that's why it's in Scripture. So let's go on and jump into Jonah 1. I'm going to read through these, follow along with me. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us thought, to, give thought to us that we may not perish. 
So here we have Jonah. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, because he had a word for them. Nineveh was east of Jerusalem. Um, You can see on the map there. Tarshish was not. It was the other direction. And so Jonah said, you know what, God? Nah, I'm going the other way. And so he gets in a boat and he heads away. We don't really know exactly where Tarshish was. We just know it was the other direction from Nineveh. And God hurled a great storm at him and the ship was about to break apart and sink. Jonah's just sound asleep in the bottom. Uh, Does that remind you of a story from the New Testament? There's a great, great storm and someone's asleep in the boat. The story of Jesus calming the storm, right? So Jonah's just kind of riding it out, hoping he can escape God. Continuing on, he said, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay and lay us. Let us not innocent be and let us not be innocent for you, innocent blood and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So these pagan uh, sailors cast lots which was used in ancient times to determine divine will. It's kind of, this is a bad analogy, but it's kind of like spin the bottle and the bottle landed on Jonah, except they weren't about to kiss him. And they were like, dude, what have you done? And he's like, all right, I'm fleeing the Lord. I'm fleeing, I'm a Hebrew, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And they're like, what do we need to do to calm the storm? Notice Jonah says, all right, you can take me back so I can get back to Nineveh. But no, he says, throw me into the sea. He's basically saying, kill me. Notice what he said there. Jonah is saying he would rather die than to go back to Nineveh and do what the Lord asked him to do. He's really taking a coward's way out. Why do you think this is? We're really going to dive into this a little bit, but I'll just kind of give you a spoiler ahead of time. Jonah hates the Ninevites so much that he would rather die than to go to them and tell them how to be saved. And this is a constant refrain that we'll hear through this book. The pagan sailors are actually the only ones that seem to care about lives right now. And they said, don't blame us, God, for this man's death. So they throw him over. Verse 17 says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So we're we're seeing God's dominion over creation mentioned a couple of times. He hurled a great storm at them and he appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. So this brings us to our first controversy. Was it a fish or was it a whale? So we're going we're gonna to take a vote here. Give me your fish hands. Who thinks it's a fish, not a whale? Okay, who thinks it was a whale? All right, there's a, quite a few undecided votes here. Here's the answer. Doesn't matter. 
Actually, the, 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 the language used doesn't specify if it was a fish or a whale, so we don't really know the answer. But it was a big animal that lives in the sea that was big enough to swallow a human. Just a big animal. And it swallowed Jonah. So that takes us to Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. He says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from the God, prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So there's a, there's a lot in this prayer that we can unpack uh, for the sake of time today. just want to touch on a, a few things. So this is really the first time we see Jonah cry out to the Lord, actually call out to God. He acknowledges that God is the Lord of all creation. Kind of hard for him not to with the storm and the, the fish that comes and swallows him. The fish doesn't just spit him out. It vomits him out is what the scripture says. Scholars say this is actually a, a sign of disgust, like God is still displeased with Jonah's heart. Nevertheless, God still rescues Jonah, which brings us to our next controversy. Was Jonah actually dead in the fish or not? Show me who thinks he was dead. How many people think he was actually alive for those three days? Okay, okay. Y'all did a little bit better voting. There's still quite a few of you who don't want to give me what you think. I actually think scripture points to the fact that Jonah was dead, um, the, the language he uses in verse 6, you brought my life up from the pit, is the language of being resurrected from the dead. Uh, and then practically, I mean, he was in the digestive system of a fish for three days. Uh, it would have obviously, there's a lot of miracles going on here. It would have taken a miracle for him to remain alive. Um, he would have looked, I think, a little think something like this if he had come out of the fish. Probably wouldn't have been the, the best candidate for prophesying to a city. Um, but I think the best evidence is actually found in the Newer Testament from Jesus' words himself. He said this in Matthew chapter 12. He said, Then some of you, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the it was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus compares his death and his resurrection to Jonah being in the, the fish for three days. And so that makes it sound like Jonah was really dead. Again, it doesn't have much impact on what's going on here, but uh, that's where a lot of scholars land. Uh, I would kind of land there too. Um, keep this just passage in Matthew, Mark. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out to the mighty God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God again calls Jonah to Nineveh. This time Jonah goes, and he preaches what might be the worst sermon in history. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all we got. That's all he said to them. He doesn't tell them to repent. He doesn't tell them what they're doing wrong to repent from. And worse, he makes no mention of God in this awful sermon. But yet, they repent. They, they turn from their evil. And then God relents from disaster that he said he would do to them. And here's where it takes a really interesting turn. But it, deple- it, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Man, the, the same compassion uh, that God showed Jonah when he was in the belly of the fish, he now, sh- he now gives to the Ninevites. He showed that same compassion to them. And Jonah, it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Man, Jonah kind of seems like a real jerk to me. I mean, like, talk about such hypocrisy. The, the, the grace that he's been given, God now gives to the Ninevites, and it just made him straight up mad. He said, this is why I wanted myself thrown off the boat, God. Don't you realize that? And the Lord said, do you well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed the scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, is it better for me to live, to die than to live? But God said to Jonah, do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make grow, which came anything into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So Jonah goes outside of the town and and pitches himself a little tent, a little booth, uh, and he's really just going to sit there and watch God blow up Nineveh is what he was hoping for. He's just kind of a, a back row seat of watching the city explode. And that's what he wanted to see. And he just got madder and madder that it didn't happen. And God, again, shows Jonah compassion and appoints a vine to grow over him to give him shade. And then God sent a worm, eats the vine, the vine withers. He sends a scorching east wind. And so Jonah just straight up asked God again to die. I really kind of want to die, God. In other words, Jonah was completely miserable. God questions Jonah over being angrier about a plant dying than the 120 souls in Nineveh. And then we got kind of what I think is one of the best endings in the Bible. God's like, these people, they're fools. They don't know their left hand from their right hand. And they got a bunch of cows. 
I've always kind of, always kind of wondered about the ending. And there was a bunch of cows. God's, what God's basically saying is that you don't want me to have compassion on these Ninevites, these people. What about even all the livestock? But you more pity the plant than you do the living souls and the animals. And that's it. That's how the book ends. Just kind of, all, I'm going to take this down so I can kind of move around a little bit. Uh, it ends on a cliffhanger with Jonah just sitting there mad and God being like, all right, you don't pity these people like I do. Um, like I said earlier, there's a lot of themes here. There's a, a lot of, we could do a whole series. Actually, we did a series about 10 years ago on Jonah. Uh, and we could do that again. There's a, a lot of themes here to cover. Uh, but I think there's a, a few just kind of high-level points I want to hit. Uh, actually, Tim Keller uh, said this. He's like, the book's really about race, grace, and mission. And so it's no secret that Jonah was a racist. Israel was God's chosen people. But even in the Old Testament, we see God welcoming in outsiders who choose to follow the true God. He welcomes in the outsiders. We see it constantly throughout the Older Testament. Chapter 1, the pagan sailors repent. They sacrifice not just to a God, but to Yahweh. They sacrifice the covenant God, the, the sacred God of Israel. God shows mercy to them. He calms the storm. God shows mercy to Nineveh. Again, outsiders, pagans. And he relents of his, uh, his, his destruction on them, even after Jonah's terrible sermon. But yet, Jonah would have rather died than to see these outsiders come to faith. Racism, listen, church, racism happens when we miss what it means to be born in the image of God. The Imago Dei. Not the color of God, not the nationality of God, the image of God. Genesis 1, if you know anything about your scripture, you know it says God created man in his own image. I like the way Matt Chandler talks about being born in the image of God. He says the most mentally incapable human in the poorest corner of the world is infinitely more valuable to God than the most expensive designer whatever doodle on the planet. All right, trivia here. Do you know what the most expensive animal ever sold is or what kind of animal it was? I hear a lot of mumbling. Somebody may have said it. It was a horse. Uh, what was that horse's name? It was some kind of crazy. Uh, but anyway, it went for like $60 million in uh, 2000. But nevertheless, the most it was like Fusashi Pegasus or something. This $60 million horse has no value compared to every human soul. Any human soul is infinitely more valuable than this horse. But racism is where we somehow get the notion that God created us with more value than somebody else who also shares the image of God. It's denying the Imago Dei. It's denying what it means to truly be born in the image of God. But maybe it's not color or nationality racism. Maybe it's, and I'm going to step on some toes here, and I realize this, uh, maybe it's political prejudice. I, I get that we live in the South and we live in a, a politically hot time right now. Uh, and, and just a warning here about this, this whole Christian nationalism movement that's going on. Look, I'm, I'm not talking about patriotism. I'm not talking about love of our country and wanting to make our country better. But what I mean is, is thinking that it's God's will for America to be defined by Christianity. And it's our jobs as Christians to make sure that happens. Let me ask this. Let me ask it another way. Are you more concerned about who is elected than you are about the souls of those who disagree with you politically? Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies? 
Uh, Pastor Paul said it last week. He said the U.S. has an expiration date. Nations are going to rise and fall, but the kingdom of God will not. Our fight is eternal, church. Okay, that's enough of that. Moving on. In the midst of all these pagans and Jonah the racist, we see overwhelming evidence of God's grace all throughout this book. How did God treat the pagan sailors when they repented? He spared their lives. What did God do uh, when Jonah was thrown into the sea and wanted to kill himself as opposed to obeying God? God sent a big fish. He saved Jonah. After Nineveh acknowledges their evil, God relents from destroying them. And even after Jonah made his booth to sit and watch God blow up the city, God gave him shade. There's really interesting parallels in the book of Jonah uh, to another story in the Newer Testament. Uh, you know what story I'm talking about? Someone who leaves uh, his father only to be welcomed back with open arms. You know what story I'm talking about? I'm talking about Luke chapter 16, the prodigal son, one of the most famous parables in the story. Most of you know the, the story of the prodigal son, but basically the prodigal son gives his dad the finger, asks for his inheritance. He's basically saying, Dad, I'd rather you be dead than alive. Give me everything that uh, you're worth. He takes his inheritance, leaves, blows it all on booze and women, comes to his senses, and he's willing to go back to his father and work as a servant uh, in his father's fields. But the father, what does he do? He welcomes him back with open arms, welcomes him back into the family, throws a big party, kills the fatted calf. And that's just like how Jonah ran from God. But God did not punish Jonah. He rescued him. He brought him up from the depths. And that's just like how God rescues us in Christ Jesus, church. He adopts us, he adopts us, he raises us up, and he brings us into his family, even when we've been running from him. But here's an interesting other parallel. Jonah doesn't just resemble the lost prodigal son. Do you remember in the, the story of the prodigal son how the older brother responds when he welcomes the younger brother back? He's mad at his dad for showing grace to the younger brother. He forgets all of the things his father has done for him. He's mad at the father for welcoming the younger son back. Just how Jonah was mad at God for rescuing somebody, he completely forgot what God has done for him. He's mad at God for rescuing Nineveh. He chose to be angry with God for having mercy on someone who he didn't think deserved it. And I think there's some real warnings for us here, church, uh, when it comes to understanding God's grace, sometimes I think we have the, the tendency to think we've moved past needing God's grace as Christians. We tend to think that we deserve what Jesus has given us. We forget how we've been rescued. If you've been coming here for any time, you hear us say it regularly that we preach the gospel every week because we forget it. We need to be reminded week in and week out. We didn't earn grace. We didn't earn God's favor. We didn't earn his merit. He freely gave it to us in spite of us running from him or telling him we deserve it. I think one evidence in our lives of, of having a poor understanding of grace or forgetting grace is when we become unwilling to forgive when someone has sinned against us. How can we not be a forgiving people when the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, gave his son to forgive us? And so lastly, uh, the, the book is about mission. It's a story of mission. Jonah was called to leave his comforts, his home, for the sake of God's kingdom. And this is just as Jesus commissioned us before he ascended to the Father. 
In Matthew 28, you probably know the Great Commission. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. As followers of Christians, we're not meant to live a life of apathy, just to sit and soak it up. After Jesus ascended to the Father, he sent the Spirit, the same Spirit that indwells followers of Jesus, the same Spirit who goes with us as we are commanded with that power to make disciples. This is our mission, church. This is our mission. So what does that mean for us? Where do you find yourself in this story? Maybe you you are like the prodigal Jonah, running from God, running from your past, running from sins or something you don't want people to know about you. Maybe you're the thankful Jonah, thankful that you've been rescued. Maybe you're prideful, arrogant, ungrateful Jonah, mad that God saves other sinners who are worse than us. Or maybe you're just an outsider. Maybe you're like the pagan sailors or Ninevites, just on the outside looking in. Sure, there, there are some really good lessons in Jonah for us, as in a lot of these Older Testament books. Uh, but is that what the book's primary purpose is, to teach us some lessons? See, we tend to read Scripture with us in focus. We tend to open the Bible and say, God, what do you have to say about me in this passage? And sure, Scripture does, like I said, teach us some lesson, lessons and show us some examples. But that's not what this story is ultimately about. Scripture itself even tells us how we must read these stories differently. Jesus' own words in Luke 24, after his resurrection, uh, if you remember the story, uh, the two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes up alongside them, uh, and they don't recognize him, and they're like, man, some crazy stuff went down today. Jesus got crucified, and you know, Jesus is like, oh, no, no, really? Um, and so they start telling him what happened, all, this, all the events around the crucifixion, of Jesus and Jesus is like, look, you fools! You don't even really know what all happened, do you? You know this was this had to happen to fulfill Scripture. And in Luke twenty four twenty seven, Jesus says this: and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. What he did is he walked through all of the Bible, and he said, "This is why the old te- this is what the Old Testament is really about. It's about me. These Old Testament Scriptures point to me." He said, "All of the prophets." including Jonah, who was one of the prophets, pointed to Jesus. You see, church, Jonah isn't ultimately about us. It's not ultimately about Jonah. It's about Jesus. We may identify with some of the characters in this story, but the story of Jonah points to the death and the resurrection of Jesus for sinners like us. We're really more like the pagan sailors and the Ninevites in this story. The outsiders outside the family of God, helpless, needy, without hope, headed for death and destruction. And Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Like Jonah, Jesus was cast into the storm so we could be brought in. Jonah was really no hero, not at all. But Jesus is. All scripture tells one big story, one story of redemption and rescue through Jesus. Because our hope, church, is not how we correct our behavior, how we get it right. Jesus didn't come to make us better. 
He came to raise our dead souls to life. You can't read scripture and see anything different. He came to bring us from death to life. Just like Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ. Our hope is only found in the saving work of Jesus. If you don't leave here with anything else, I want you to leave with that hope, that our hope is only found in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. It's all about Jesus. I told you we'd come back to Matthew 12 uh, in, in verse 41. This is what Jesus said. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let me pray for us.